We are in the final sermon for our four-part sermon series on the book of Psalms, and today we are reading from Psalm 133. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. Thanks be to God. Thanks for the word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. (laughs) Psalm 133 is a psalm that is found in the latter part of the, the collection of psalms, these hymns that Israel sang, and they're known as songs of ascent, songs of ascent. And these psalms are all grouped together from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And so today, Psalm 133 is the second to last of them. Some think that uh, the early community brought them together for organizational purposes, but more likely they were used for special activities in worship. And so we clumped all our favorite hymns together. The actual word ascent in Hebrew, kala, means to go up. Kala, ascend, to go up. And what happened is people would make a pilgrimage from wherever they are towards Jerusalem during holy times and festivals. And so they would always make their way up towards Jerusalem. Everybody gathered together in caravans as they make their way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the high place with the temple on the mount in Jerusalem that is high. And so one literally goes up to Jerusalem like we would go up to Big Bear Lake. It's an exalted place. And so as the people make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate feasts and holy times, they sing these songs and they sing Psalm 133 to express their joy for coming together in worship And the theme, as we have read, is about unity, and it is about abundance. Songs of ascent, people together going up, singing these songs together. Now, the song uh, from Psalm 133, this is the Hebrew word here. Hine matov umanayim shevet achim gamyachat. When I was in South Africa, I grew up in South Africa, uh, Dr. Richard Davidson from Andrews University taught us this Hebrew song. I'm going to ask Pastor Iki to come help me. Uh, This is not an advertisement for our Vespers concert, because we'll have time to practice this. I would like for you to sing this along with me. This song goes in rounds. So as I teach Pastor Iki this, you learn along. The words are, Hine Matov. Umanayim, Shevet Achim, the guttural sound in my language Afrikaans, we have all the time, the groen gras groei, but I know for some of you you struggle. So Shevet Achim, Gam Yachad, say it again, Hine Matov, Hine 
Umanayim, Shevet Achim, Gam Yachad. And this is how it goes. Hine Matov Umanayim. Everybody sing that with me. Hine Matov Umanayim. I should probably do it a little slower, right? Hine Matov Umanayim. Second part goes like this. Shevarachim gam yachad. Let's do that part. Shevarachim gam yachad. Hine matov manayim. Shevarachim gam. One more time. Hine matov manayim. Shevarachim gam yachad. Next part goes like this. Hine matov shevarachim gam yachad. And then it repeats again. Hine matov shevarachim gam yachad. So do it again. Hine matov shevarachim gam yachad. Hine matov shevarachim gam yachad. If you're a visitor, this doesn't happen every week. <laughs> so now you put them together, and uh, I'll be going straight to the song. Pastor Iki is going to repeat, um, starting over the, the first two lines. Everybody on this side, you're with Pastor Iki. Everybody on this side, you are with myself. And we're going to be singing this in a round. Let's hope it works. You good, Iki? I will be. Everybody ready on this side? All right, follow. Everybody ready on this be. side? Okay, here we go. Hine matovu manayim sheverachim gam yachad. Hine matovu manayim sheverachim gam yachad. Hine matov sheverachim gam yachad. Hine matov sheverachim gam yachad. Everybody got it? I now we, we need did. to sing I... it like we mean it and celebrate it. So we're going to pick up the pace and we're going to increase the volume, right? We're going on our way to Jerusalem. Right. So here we go. Hine matovu manayim sheverachim gam yachad. Hine matovu manayim sheverachim gam yachad. Hine matov 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 I see you want to keep going, but we want you to sit down. All right, I'm sitting. <laughs> that was really good. So as the people are making their way to pilgrimage, they're singing it, and there's probably lots of percussive instruments and things going along with them as they are ascending up, going up towards Jerusalem. And as you know, maybe you didn't feel the warm fuzzies, but when we sing together and we do songs and rounds, something about that that just feels really good. The harmonies, you hear it, and the rhythm, it is so beautiful. And so they sing these words, how good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Isn't that beautiful? 
specifically on this Thanksgiving Sabbath, how very pleasant and good it is when kindred live together in unity. And Psalm 133 is all about unity. So today is a sermon, and you're probably going like, not another sermon on unity. Well, let's dig in a little deeper, because we live in a world where unity is lacking. When we think of the conflicts that are in the world and in the news, there is no unity between China and Taiwan. There is no unity between India and Pakistan. There is internal strife and conflict in Myanmar. There is internal conflict and strife in Sudan. There is no unity and conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And of course, we also know that there is strife and disunity in Palestine and Israel today. And so we are reading Psalm 133, and I don't think the irony should be lost on us that we're singing from an ancient Israel hymnal. Psalm 133 is about unity and abundance, and we live in a world of disharmony, of disunity. So this very feel-good psalm may sound like this in our 2023 version. <laughs> How very bad and hellish it is when kindred don't live together in unity. For where hatred, for their hatred ordained its curse, death forevermore. That seems to be the way that this psalm plays out in our world today. How good and pleasant it is to live together in harmony and unity, yet we do not experience that in our world, in our countries, even our states, our cities, our homes. And so as we look at Psalm 133, and we have this contrasting realities of the beauty of what the psalm is talking about and the reality of our lives, perhaps we can see that Psalm 133 is not so much about what is, but about what could be. Maybe it's not so much about what is, but about what could be. So let's dig in a little bit deeper and see how that plays out in this psalm. This psalm is structured in a chiastic uh, way that you find very often in Hebrew um, poetry, in scripture. It has an A, B, B, A structure. Sorry, I know it's vacation, those of you who are in school. It's got this A, 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 B, B, A, and it's an inverted parallelism, and you can see there how this very short and simple psalm plays out. A, good and pleasant. B, it's like oil. B, it's like dew. A, life evermore, and the thing that holds it all together is unity. So unity, A, how good and pleasant it is, it's like oil, it's like dew, we live forevermore. It's a simple structure, and the opening line and the last line are directly con connected to each other, as we'll see in a little, good, a little bit. Two metaphors, oil and dew, and we'll be looking at these in just a little bit. So, good and pleasant. 
The first part of the uh, psalm says, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Good and pleasant. In fact, good and pleasant is an exclamation of blessing that was uttered by visitors or travelers upon entering in someone else's home. So if I were to come to your home, you would say, how good and pleasant is it? Welcome. I would do the same if you came to my house and say, how good and pleasant it is to have you here. It was an utterance, an exclamation of hospitality. In fact, the word good also makes us think about Genesis chapter 1 and the creation story. The very word tov in Hebrew, good, is the same word used in Genesis 1 when God says everything that God created was, was good. God's assessment of creation is that it was tov, it was good. Uh, verse one, uh, chapter one, verse four, 10, 12, 18, and 21 in Genesis, God says, and God saw that it was good. And then the conclusion of the creation narrative, we see in verse 31 that it says, and God saw everything that God had made, and indeed it was very good. And then in Genesis Two, the creation story, however, declares it is not good, lo tov, for the human to be alone. I will make them a helper as their partner. So God creates everything and says, it's good, it's good, it's good. Everything is good, but it is not good for humanity to be alone, and I will create for them a partner. And so the word good when the readers or hearers of the original story listens to it, they know that it's speaking about God's provision of community and interrelatedness with each other. In a similar way, the word pleasant in Psalm 130, uh, 133, its meaning is lovely, good, attractive, friendly, joyous. And in the Old Testament, we often see Good in parallel with pleasant in Genesis and Psalms and Job and Proverbs and many other places. So good and pleasant go together. And as the people are journeying and making their way to worship up at Jerusalem, they sing these songs together to say how very good and how pleasant it is to live together in community. To be unified, to find a sense of oneness in community is indeed a beautiful thing. Then we see it says, for kindred. How beautiful and pleasant it is for kindred. When we think of kindred, the word there actually is brothers. We've made the gender inclusive one here, kindred. We think of brothers or sisters. Is it biological? That could be plausible. However, because this is a psalm of ascent going up to Jerusalem, it is about God's people on pilgrimage together to Jerusalem. So it is kindred, all of God's people, God's covenant people together going up to Jerusalem. We each have our own kindredness based on blood, but this psalm celebrates the covenant community in oneness with God and with each other. And by the way, I think this psalm is highly ambitious. It begins on the very particular summit, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, but then it cascades down from there. It starts with a few insiders, but flows outwards towards blessing for many, and in fact, for all kindred, as we shall see. 
And then we find two metaphors illustrating this good and pleasant unity that flows over humanity. Only liquid can flow, so the psalmist in classical Hebrew parallelism, as we've seen, gives us two liquids, oil and dew. So we look at the first one, oil. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. Not a metaphor that really speaks to us today, right? Unless you're Kevin Strain with his beard. He's got an awesome beard, and by the way, he makes his own beard, Kevin's beard balm or something like that, to keep it in shape, right? Anointing your beard with oil, your head with oil. This is a practice that was part of daily hygienic ritual for rich families, and it usually involved scented olive oil and perfumed ointment. This had both a cooling and a relieving effect on the person wearing it, as well as covering object objectionable odors. I'm not sure that's why you're doing it, Kevin, but... Um It was also widely practiced uh, at festivals occasions. It was customary to anoint the head of some important guest at the feast. And it was also used at the coronation of the king, as we know from the Old Testament, um, symbolic of the monarch's role as a servant to God. And of course, here it references Aaron, the priest, and the readers or singers have in mind Aaron's anointing, the brother of Moses, when he was anointed to be the priest of the people. Oil was used in many rituals to turn something or someone holy or sacred. Oil indicated God's presence and was a symbol of the Spirit, bringing warmth, perfume, and peace. But in this picture, the sacred making oil is flowing over not just Aaron's he uh, head, it comes down over his head, down his beard, and to even on his clothes, on the collar of his robes. And so we have this beautiful metaphor here of lavish anointing from head flowing all the way down. I know it may sound disgusting to some of us. But what a beautiful metaphor as it flows, abundance, unlimited goodness. In fact, the psalmist says that it's precious oil. And again, the word that we translate as precious is in fact tov, which is good. So it is saying how good it is to be, to be together as kindred. And then this good oil is what makes it so good. How good and pleasant. Oil refreshes, honors, protects, disinfects. I think the psalmist had probably all of these in mind when he wrote that unity among each other was like oil running down the beard. Then it goes to a metaphor that we would be more comfortable with probably, dew. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So the other metaphor here in verse 3 is water. It's dew and Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon, here's a picture of it. Mount Hermon is located about 125 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was known for its abundant dew. It was always, always covered with snow, and in Palestine which saw very little rainfall between the months of April and October, dew was an important commodity, it was central to their lives. 
Without the nightly accumulation of the dew, the land would be parched and dry for many, many months out of the year, which obviously they didn't want. So Mount Hermon rises above uh, the Jordan, Upper Jordan Valley, and it has its share of heavy rainfall and snow, and then the melting snow or dew flowed down into the valley, and it feeds the Jordan River and reaches as far as the oasis of Jericho. And so you can see in a dry and arid country where the rain is scarce and the rivers dry up, the land and the people depend on water that comes from this distant source. It is the scarcity of water and dry lands which makes Mount Hermon's dew so precious. So like oil that flows down the beard of Aaron, so the dew of Mount Hermon reaches far beyond its points of origin and gives life even to faraway lands outside of its own space and location. And just like that, God's generosity calls people to worship. And in worshiping this God of abundant life and love, we become one family. How good and pleasant it is for kindred to live together in unity. And both metaphors of oil and dew, that's what it's like to live together in unity. Both metaphors of oil and dew are a good reminder to us that unity is never passive. It's not a passive entity. It's a dynamic one. It flows. It cascades, tending towards greater harmony or chaos, depending on how we respond as God's people. How good and pleasant it is to live together in unity. It's like oil, it's like dew. And then the last part of this chiastic structure says, for there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. Now this there certainly refers to Mount Zion as a physical location. But in the context of the psalm, it also refers back to verse one, in this Kaisic structure, where the there refers to where people live together in harmony. So you can see that on the slide up there. The there refers to when kindred people live together in unity. And then it has this word blessing, barak, that we find all over scripture as well. God says to Abram, in you all families of the earth shall be blessed and then again, after Jacob's long night of wrestling, we read, and there God blessed him. And then Moses says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, surely the Lord your God has blessed you. We find this word blessing throughout scripture. And God's favor rests, the psalmist says, blessed wherever kindred live together in unity. And then... It says there is life evermore. This blessing of being together in unity gives life evermore. Kindred living together is a scarce commodity in our world, it seems. But God's promises blessings where it is found and where it is fostered. And so to be clear, Psalm 133 is not here necessarily meaning about a personal individual afterlife. The Hebrew collective hopes we're not that. In Psalm 133, in context here, life evermore is promising that unity will bring the ever-continuing vitality of the community. The ever-continuing vitality of the community. And so unity brings this blessing of communal longevity to the people of Israel 
and beyond. So we're talking about unity, where people live together in unity, the blessing of God flows even to the furthest boundaries of existence. Harmony between people creates positive and literal and figurative space, an atmosphere conducive to experiencing God's presence and blessings. Harmony with one another and with God leads to atonement at one meant. Bring us all together in oneness. And so as covenant people of God, we are called upon to pray and work for all kindred, all people, both to imagine and to create a unified world that serves God. This comes from God above. From, we sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And the imagery is here. All of this comes from God. And so we are here together today and we are responsible for one another to love and to care and to nurture all of us because everything we have comes from God. The reality though is that life is fractured, ruptured, and divided. And so if we look honestly at this psalm, we'll see that the context of this song of ascent is also a context of rupture, fracture, and divide. You see, the context here in Psalm 133 is that there was discord between two fractions of the nation. Unity was to be found where kindred lived together in unity, but sadly, discord would ultimately split ancient Israel, Israel into two. There's the mention of Mount Hermon in the north and Mount Zion in the south, uh, by the author, and this hints at a, at a desire for political reconciliation between the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. See, because after Solomon's death, the northern tribes separated from Judah and the south, and no unity was possible for the next several hundred years. So perhaps the pilgrims, as they are on their way to Jerusalem, singing how good and pleasant it would be for us to live together in harmony, in unity, perhaps it is more about hope than celebration because they live in a fractured world where north and south are separated. So the reality of this psalm is similar to the reality of our lives. For most of the psalm's history, this song was sung by people who hoped for healing between fractured tribes. So this psalm, this song is a song of hope, perhaps more than a song of celebration. Of course, we celebrate whenever we see kindred living together in unity. When we see it, we celebrate it. We draw attention to it. We embrace it. We hold on to it. Where we don't see it, where we don't see it, we sing a song about what we hope for. And this isn't just a superficial unity where we decide to ignore our differences so we can get the job done. And it's also not a compromising unity in where, which we sacrifice our own values for the sake of working together. No, no, no. This is a sanctifying unity. A sanctifying unity. Sanctified by oil and dew that comes from God above from whom all blessings flow. Raymond E. Brown says it well in this quote. There is a difference between unity and uniformity. 
Dwelling together in unity does not mean that we are rubber stamped into a similar form. The church is not to be involved in cookie cutter Christianity. Christian unity is not brought about by mechanical restrictions and regulations. Christian unity is a heart union of believers ready to work together for the purpose of God, glorifying God, and furthering the work of God's kingdom. Unity is about, is about heart union, not superficial or compromising unity. And one sure way to heal disunified people is for each one to recognize that they have gifts available to the other. I'll say that again. One way to heal disunified people is for each one to recognize that they have gifts available to the other. More unity would be enjoyed if we looked for what we could contribute in serving others rather than seeking retribution and redress. The way that this plays out for me is when I think about my home country, South Africa. I've been in the U.S. since 2001, but grew up in South Africa. In fact, I grew up in what was known as apartheid South Africa. You're familiar with that? Apartheid South Africa, this is the flag under which I grew up. The old, the, what we call the Urania Blania Blow, which is a hint to the colonizers, the Dutch. So I grew up in apartheid South Africa, uh, where it was state-sanctioned segregation and racism. We are familiar with it, unfortunately, in this country as well and many other places, where beaches were segregated, uh, where whites could go to the nice beaches and non-whites had the bad beaches. And so growing up in South Africa, I was not really aware of all of this because I grew up as a white privileged person looking, listening to state controlled media. Growing up in apartheid South Africa, then slowly but surely as I grew older and the Adventist church was integrated a little bit more in advance of the country, unfortunately not integrated enough and fast enough, but my eyes were open to the realities of racism in our country. And the crazy thing is, um, you can see here, it may be difficult to see, but the, the disproportionate land division among whites and non-whites, and I forget exactly the percentages, but whites at basically 80, 90% of the country, and non-whites had to live in other places and carry passports and all these kinds of things. So when you talk about fraction and discord, uh, disunity, you can think of this. Our people are legislated into being divided. But I grew up and then uh, in 1994, I was a senior at Helderberg High School. Um, and we had our first democratic elections. I was just too young to vote for President Nelson Mandela. That I was just too young. Just couldn't make it. But so we moved from the old apartheid South Africa to the new South Africa. You probably heard about it. The new South Africa. As you can see, we moved to a colorful flag because we are the rainbow nation. Where everybody from all races and ethnicities and languages and backgrounds, we celebrate our togetherness because for the first time in our history, we have democratically elected government. One of the things that South Africa had to wrestle with is how do you bring so many fractured people 
with so much trauma, with hate, with anger, with so many pent-up emotions, how do you bring all these people together in unity to be kindred spirits living together in unity? How good and pleasant that would be. But how do you do that? One of the amazing things that happened in my homeland is that they developed a new national anthem. Because as you can imagine, people from all the different cultural backgrounds had their own national anthem that was their pride and their joy. By the way, we have 11 official languages in South Africa. All government documents are posted in the four largest ones. So as we get to a new South Africa, how do you bring fractured people together? And committees sat together. Of course, it's always a committee. But God bless these people in the committee because they were able to come up with a beautiful national anthem for the new South Africa that respects and honors the history of everybody's experiences leading up to this, that respects and honors the culture, but also contributes to a new unified nation. And so what they did is to take parts of each of the cultural groups, their representative songs, and you can see over there, we have five official languages in our beautiful national anthem for South Africa. The first part is, it's from the hymn, Kosi Sikileli Africa, it's in Kosa. The second verse is in Zulu. The third verse is in Sutu. The fourth verse is in Afrikaans, my, home, my first language. And then the last verse is in English. And together, this committee formed this new national anthem, which is kind of our pride and joy. Uh, a month ago, South Africa won the Rugby World Cup. And uh, I know you don't care about rugby, it's just a much better version of the NFL. Um, <laughs> so I grew up playing rugby, cricket, and te uh, tennis and soccer, those are my, my big sports. Um, and so this a month, month and a half ago, I was sitting in front of the TV. Pastor Otis was sitting with me because he was interested, and I would be screaming. My family would have to go uh, into their rooms. Um, it was beautiful to do this, but something interesting is happening because in 1995, when Nelson Mandela was elected, there was this hope for this beautiful new rainbow nation, and initially things went well. But now, almost 30 years down the line, South Africa is perhaps even more fractured than what it had been during the apartheid era. Empty promises made by politicians about life and how good it's going to be. My parents not having power for six hours a day, and sometimes no water for seven or eight days in a week. And you can imagine what that does to people and how people are, have pent up emotions. But the one thing that brought the nation together again is the Rugby World Cup. Rugby World Cup is traditionally a white person's sport. It's played by the Buddha. It's a traditionally a white person's sport. But a beautiful thing happened. In 1995, we were able to compete in the World Cup rugby for the first time internationally because there were sanctions against us. And President Nelson Mandela, we won the World Cup in 1995. What a beautiful story. You should go watch the movie on that. President Nelson Mandela lifted the trophy with our uh, South African white captain at that point. And it was a symbol of the new South Africa and what we could hope for. But the reality after that is that fractures continued, division continued. There was discord, disharmony, disunity. 
And so in this interesting moment we find ourselves in 2023 in South Africa, the national rugby team moved from an all-white team to a completely mixed team, where we had blacks and whites and people of mixed race play together and become the heroes of kids, whether they are black or white or of mixed race. And you can go online and look at YouTube videos. It's just phenomenal to see all the kids of all different just celebrating this big World Cup. I know I'm going on about it because it's rugby, but there's a point to it. When we sing the national anthem, it is a beautiful thing. I was going to show you the national anthem is recorded in the final playing, but it's copyrights and YouTube will, those of you who are streaming, will drop. So we can't play that. But here's, here's our national anthem uh, from somebody sitting far uh, up in, uh, in the rafters, whatever you call it, um, and we'll see what it sounds like. Oh. I'm not sure what happened there, Paul. Such a beautiful thing. You can see all the rugby players singing it. Um, and white and black and mix, everybody hugging each other, singing at the top of their lungs like athletes shouldn't because they sound terrible. But they're singing because they're passionate because how good and pleasant it is to be together in unity, even if it happens for just one moment. How good and pleasant it is, and as kids and, and grandparents and everybody sing together around the television, yes, worshiping the television, but sitting around the television, the country went mad when we won. South Africa went on a four-day, the, the team went on a four-day championship tour, and you see, saw people in townships, in the rich areas, People from all different backgrounds coming out and for four days partying. Because how good and pleasant it is when we have hope. When our reality is different, what do we do? We sing. We sing and we bring 
the very best of ourselves and we offer it to the other to create a beautiful new unity. What a beautiful experience for us. Of course, it's the great Nelson Mandela that said, it always seems impossible until it's done. Imagine him sitting in prison for 27 years saying, it's always impossible until it's done. How good and pleasant it is for kindred to live together in unity. We hope for that even though our reality is not that right now. And when the reality of kindred spirits happen, we celebrate it, we see it, we embrace it, we acknowledge it, we affirm it. And when it does not happen, we sing. We sing with our hearts and our souls to point to something that can be. We only get glimpses of it every now and again. But boy, is it beautiful when we see it. Lance Watson says this about this psalm. When it was born in Jerusalem, the church was a fellowship. When it went to Greece, it became a philosophy. When it went to Rome, it became an institution. When it went to Europe, it became a culture. When it went to America, it became a business, an enterprise. How the church needs to return to being a fellowship again. Ouch. And amen. How very good and pleasant it is when... Kindred live together in unity. <laughs> it's like precious oil on the beard, running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the Mount Zion. For there, the Lord ordained his blessing. Life evermore. Amen.